The ancient Greeks and Romans loved walking over intricate mosaics laid into floors for their pleasure and drinking wine out of splendidly embossed cups. But because they put no value on those who worked with their hands, they despised the people who'd created all this beauty. Jews and Christians hallowed work. Theirs, after all, was a God who worked and found it very good, and who wanted those who followed in the Lord's way to work hard to cultivate the cre creation and to thrive to and thrive to bring it to its perfection. But it's been too easy to turn this appreciation of worthy labor into a weapon to grind down so many to satisfy the comfort and happiness of so few. It's hard to imagine a greater misunderstanding of the ideas of the Bible regarding work, although we see it all around us. Why, we would starve, we'd be naked, we'd hardly be able to carry on living as we become accustomed to if our well-being didn't rest upon the backs of those whose toil out of sight to keep us comfortable. So let me start here with this perversion of work. I'll call upon the experience of the French philosopher Simone Weil to give words to what I'm talking about. Most people, ground down by work that's soulless and degrading, have lost the ability to give voice to their experience. In the 1930s, Simone Weil worked in a number of factories in France, including places run by Citroën and Renault. She didn't understand the first thing about factory life, had no clue about how to get on the good side of the foreman. And they, a philosopher of the first rank, had no idea how to connect with her fellow workers. She hardly knew the difference between a drill press and a wine press. Her poor health and eyesight and total lack of skill in working for hours in dangerous, at dangerous and complicated machines meant that she rarely managed to achieve even the minimum number of stamped rivets or holes drilled into metal plates. She earned the anger of the foreman and the pity or the disgust of her fellow workers. Simone Weil took an interest in the comrades who worked around her. She admired the woman who, after a bruising day in the factory, could still go out all night dancing. The male worker who sang as he stood minding the furnace. And another who brought reading matter to work, car magazines. She noted the man who developed such skills in putting tools in order that nobody bothered him. He'd made himself indispensable and out of reach. She admired how some of her companions seemed to be able to rise above the drudgery of the work and to keep a part of their inner selves intact. 
But then she also saw those whose modest hopes were thwarted and dashed. Mind you, Simone Weil didn't work in the factories because she was impoverished. She was a member of a wealthy and well-connected, assimilated Jewish family. No, she went to work in the factories to find out for herself what it was really like there. And at the end of the diary she kept of her months working in factories, she summed up her impressions. It's a hard, harsh indictment of the humanity so many experience in their effort to keep themselves and their families from going under. She felt like a beast of burden, she wrote. A slave, that is, a person with no rights. She lived in daily dread of what would happen to her if she relaxed her concentration on what she was doing to keep from getting barked at by the exacting foreman or hurt by the dangerous machines. Her feeling of self-respect had been destroyed, she felt. She was someone who didn't count. And worst of all, the very worst, was the humiliation, the feeling that leaves you trapped in powerlessness and fear. A great gulf is fixed between the life that Simone Weil and her fellow workers experienced in the factories during the 1930s and those who work today in fields or backroom sweatshops, and the understanding of work as the Bible luminously portrays it. The understanding of the goodness of work, this theology of work, that our scriptures emphasize needs to be spoken of to remind us of how far we are from making it real for millions of people and to offer a vision of work that isn't limited by the desire to make money and an addiction to getting and spending, but takes its brightness from the example of God. In the first place, God isn't above work. Even the kind of travail that feels like the pain of birthing. The God of the Israelites found the work created to be good. And when it came to the work of creating us, that work was very good. And because we're created in God's image and God values work and creation, and ask any person who creates if these two activities aren't the same, we read of the kinds of work people in the scriptures are engaged in. Amos was a herdsman and a fig grower. Don't call him a prophet, he answered the professional priest Amaziah firmly. Bezalel won fame for his metalwork. Paul together with Aquila and his wife, were tent makers. And Jesus, following the tradition of the woodworkers who decorated the temple of Solomon and his father, was also a woodworker. They were proud that they worked for their living, understanding their craft as that English word craft originally meant 
as virtue. This value placed on work in the scriptures was carried on by St. Benedict and his monks and given an added meaning when he described their life as one of prayer and work, ora et labora. Those who visit monasteries can get a direct experience of this. You're invited to share in worship and in washing dishes, walking the cloister and raking up the leaves. After a while, the difference between the two becomes blurred. When is an activity work and when is it prayer? Hard to say. I learned this particularly when I was invited to participate in the summer program of the seminary in France for worker priests of the Roman Catholic Church before they were forced to disband. So I spent the summer term working and praying under the shadow of the Cistercian Abbey Church of Pontigny. In the morning, we attended classes, and this, as this was during the early glory days following the Vatican, Second Vatican Council, all but one of these lectures was delivered in French. An old priest, too old to change, continued to lecture in Latin. I just don't know the words in French, he'd say, smiling. And after class, we went off to our work, our labora. When the peas were coming in, we picked long rows of them. When it was strawberry time, we picked strawberries and ate them at every meal. Two of us had the task of climbing up into the linden trees to pick the blossoms there, to be dried and turned into tisane, an herbal tea. That task, that labora, turned quickly for me into prayer, aura, when I climbed higher and higher into the trees in search of blossoms. No one seemed to complain about the flow of life that summer. Work in the fields complemented study, making it sweeter, where study would stop at noonday, and then we could go out into the sun, feel dirt on our hands, eat our fill of peas and strawberries while we picked them, and at evening time on feast days, wash it all down at the community meals with the wine of the area, Chablis. I think I learned that summer for the first time that the work we were doing in the fields or up in the linden trees and in our classrooms too was a continuation of God's wonderful work of creation and that we were being asked to cooperate in it, playing a small part in the evolvement of a great history whose goal and perfection would only be revealed when things ended. And I thought of Adam in the Garden of Eden and how it was a mistake to think that all he did was to roam around umbrageous grots and caves of cool recess, as John Milton liked to imagine it, bestowing names on the animals. Not at all. God quite specifically put Adam in the garden to till it and to look after it. 
except in those prelapsarian days, tilling was a delight from sunup to sundown. And looking after the garden meant going about picking leaves and berries, roots and nuts, trying each one, finding the virtue and the medicine in each. Work and pleasure, activity and rest, were all the same thing. In Eden, life was peace, was wholeness from sunrise to sunset. And even now, this feeling of wholeness, of peace, can descend upon us from time to time as a mysterious gift, and we're transported to a place many of us may only remember happening during our earliest childhoods, when days were filled with delight and time didn't seem to exist. I think of the ice hockey player I once read about, who'd been a professional for years but had grown tired of the game, with its pressures, the critics, the fans, the constant pounding from his fellow players. It had started out being a delight playing hockey, but with time, it had simply become work, a job. One day, he saw a pond newly iced over, all black ice, no snow to cover it. He pulled the car over, turned off the engine, took his skates from the trunk of the car, walked down to the shore, and laced them up. He flew over the ice, made circles, eights, sudden stops. He hadn't felt like this since he was a kid. This is why he loved ice skating, he remembered. And in the flow of the beautiful, easy moments, movements, he felt outside of time. And it could have, he could have gone on skating forever. But he had to be at the rink in two hours to warm up for a game against the Montreal Canadiens. That would be work, regular work, he knew. But he'd had his time when work had become pleasure, when pleasure had become beauty, and beauty a precious taste of heaven. He'd been in heaven for a while, he knew, and though he had to go back to the earth, very much so, he'd felt the flow of divine movement within him and had been one with it, and he knew he could go back there again. And from time to time, I meet people whose jobs are similar to what Simone Weil experienced in the factories, but refuse to let their work define who they are and rise above what could have crushed and humiliated them, and in the process, let their soul shine through. I think of the African-American bus driver I got to know in Washington, D.C. I rode with him when I went to work at the Library of Congress. I had no idea how mean-spirited people who took the bus could be. Why was the bus late again? How thoughtless of you to let the bus tires splash my lovely Gucci shoes. Some just grunted at him when they gave him their transfer ticket. 
And through it all, he'd greet them with a smile, remember where they wanted to get off, never swore when a car cut in front of the bus. His work could have embittered him, but instead he was able to transfigure it with natural goodness, a lot of patience and humor and, yes, love. He'd say to the old lady who struggled up the steps, so how is Miss Emma today? And to the men and women who are on their way home, and to the cleaning women who are on their way to work, house painters on a job, or cocky staffers on the hill, he'd wish them all a good day. He didn't have to be like that. Certainly there were plenty of bus drivers who weren't. But a beauty that came from God seemed to irradiate, irradiate this bus driver's actions. And quite miraculously, his humble work glowed with the presence and beauty of God. We saw in this bus driver that peace Adam had known in paradise. The bus driver had found within himself the pearl of great price in this thankless, humiliating job. And may we, who have pearls stuffed everywhere in boxes, be given the pearl that counts. Amen.